Perhaps you've heard statements like these before. I'll head to church this weekend if my schedule allows for it. You know, I don't really like large crowds, so church really isn't for me. You know, I can do church anywhere. It isn't about a building, right? I can do church in the comfort of my own home. I'm not really a people person. That's why I like Christianity. It's all about a personal relationship with Jesus. Or perhaps you've heard this one. Jesus said, don't judge. And all they do down there at church is judge you. Why should I join a church? I'm a part of the universal church after all. Sadly, I hear these statements often and with great frequency. Because people... And I was like this, thought that the church was just something that if I had time for it, I would work it. But if I didn't, it really wasn't essential, wasn't important, wasn't necessary for my Christian life. You've, I'm sure, heard statements like these before as well. Perhaps you've even said them yourself. But we're reminded that the church is something more than just a building. Yes, it is more than mere relationship. The church is about God's glory being displayed among the nations. And as we begin a new year, I wanted to spend 2019 studying the book of Ephesians. Now, why, why study Ephesians? Well, Because I hope that as a congregation, we might recover or regain a greater love for the church. Not that we don't love the church, not that we don't care about the church, but that our hearts might grow to love the church all the more. Ephesians contains perhaps some of the richest statements in all of the New Testament about the church. Consider statements like these. In him, you also were being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Or there is one body and one hope that belongs to your call. Or rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together, held by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow, but it builds itself up in love. Did you hear that? A a healthy church leads to healthy Christians. A maturing church produces mature Christians. Or one of the richest passages passages in all of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul writes, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. Who created all things through, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. See, it wasn't on your couch, in front of your TV. It wasn't in your wonderful ministry that you have in the coffee shop. But it was through the church. That God ordained his glory 
to shine the brightest. It seems that the church should be on our priority columns, not necessarily on our if-I-get-to-it column. The church is essential to the Christian life. And I don't mean the building. I mean the gathering together of God's people. And so we want to spend our time to that end, thinking about God's word in Ephesians. So I invite you this morning to turn to Ephesians, page 976 in the Pew Bible. And we're going to spend this year studying this book. We will end on the last day of 2019, in chapter 6, verse 23 and 24. So over this year, we're going to spend our time thinking about this book. Because it's God's word. And we're going to consider it piece by piece throughout the year. 43 Sundays in Ephesians. So I hope you like it. Because we're going to be in it for God's glory. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you. And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is writing this letter to a church in Ephesus. Or at least in and around Ephesus. What is today modern day Turkey. Ephesus was a metropolitan city. Massive. Central to the Roman Empire. Large economy. Sprawling buildings. Masses of people. He's writing to a church in Ephesus that he would have known well about. Perhaps even a congregation that he started himself. Ephesians, unlike many of Paul's letters, is not situational. Which means he's not writing for a specific problem. Not like Colossians, when he's writing to undo some really bad theology. Or when he wrote Corinthians and tried to straighten out a church that had lost its way. And fallen into error. Ephesians is a circular letter. A letter that's meant to be spread around and read by as many congregations as possible. Uh, It was general in nature so that it could have its greatest impact upon the churches. Uh, This letter contains really very little information about the church in Ephesus itself. There's only a few names that are mentioned in the book. Which seems strange for for a church that he spent so much time ministering in. This is why many believe that this book is really uh, meant to be spread around, uh, to be shared with the, maybe the country churches and the, the suburban churches, if you will, surrounding the larger city of Ephesus. Many of the earliest manuscripts you'll see in your Bible notate that the word in Ephesus isn't even mentioned as a means to make it more at home, if you will. And so this morning we could insert our name in there to the saints who are in Catonsville. And are faithful in Christ Jesus. That's the intent of this letter. In order to communicate the widest and to encourage the most. Paul wrote this letter to encourage the saints. To build up the church. To encourage God's people to faithfulness. This letter helps us today. Perhaps one of the most practical letters in all of the New Testament. Though all of the New Testament is practical. This general letter helps us understand what a church is, who Christians are, and most importantly, who God is. The letter itself, if you look at it, 
like a letter you would write to a friend or family. It has a beginning, it has a middle, and it has an end. I know, ingenious, right? If you look at your Bibles open just for a moment, I'll give you an overview of the whole letter. In chapters 1 through 3, Paul lays out a grand theological point. That the gospel of Jesus Christ has come to the Gentiles. That Jesus saves sinners for his own glory. And that this is a part of God's eternal call, a gracious call. We could summarize chapters 1 through 3 as God's gracious call in Christ Jesus. And then in chapters 4 through 6, Paul begins to apply the theology that he taught in chapters 1 through 3. It's very practical about how to walk in this new calling. So in chapters 1 through 3, Paul says you've been called graciously by God. You've been saved by his grace. And now, chapter 4 through 6, live like it. Live in this new call that you have in Christ. And so with this rather lengthy introduction, we're going to begin studying this passage. So today we're going to look just at verses 1 and 2. In thinking about what Paul has to write. And in this introduction, Paul opens with what he's going to talk about. The point of the passage could be this. God calls Christians to a life of service and faith by his grace and peace given through Jesus Christ, our Lord. When you write an email, you often will put on the, in the email a subject. Or you'll get that warning. You're about to send an email without a subject. Uh, we don't often open emails without subjects because they might have a virus in them or, or they're really not very boring. If you pay attention and you get many emails, you'll notice that some are very creative with the subject line. They've got little emojis in there and, uh, you know, exclamation point, open me, open me. Why? Well, because if it's not appealing in the subject line, you're going to do what I do and just hit delete, Right? It's going to shuffle down. And, and before long, these emails that you're hitting delete, that you, maybe you don't hit delete on, they, they mass and, and you don't. Well, this is what Paul is doing in this, in this text. Uh, Paul is telling us, hey, this is what I'm going to tell you. This is what I want to tell you about. I want to tell you about God's grace and peace that comes through Jesus Christ. I want to tell you uh, about what it means to serve God and what it looks like to be called saints together. And so this morning, Paul lays out three descriptions of a Christian's new identity in Christ, which he will build on in the letter. First, in the text, we see that Christians are servants of Christ. Secondly, we see that Christians are saints in Christ. And finally, that Christians are receivers of grace and peace through Jesus Christ. So first, notice here in verse 1, Paul writes, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Paul has been called by God to a life of service for his glory. Paul's not stumbled into this job. He didn't sign up for it. He wasn't eyeing it. He wasn't looking to be an apostle. Uh, it wasn't handed down to him through some long family tradition. Nor has Paul earned this position through a life of obedience and study and hard work. Paul tells us that he's been called by the will of God. God alone has called him to this job, this role. 
He tells us further that, that he works for Christ. That he answers to Jesus and Jesus alone. Now I want you to look at the text again. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And you might say, well, that's just a short little verse and not much there. Oh, there's, there's something there. I want you to see what Paul's job was. Paul identifies himself as an apostle of Christ. He's not just throwing names and titles around. There's an important message that he's communicating by using this title. This is very different than Philippians, for example, where he says, I'm a servant of Christ. He doesn't call himself an apostle there. Here he calls himself an apostle. What is an apostle? An apostle is someone who represents someone else. He's a messenger. And Paul has been enlisted in a new occupation uh, to be a messenger of Christ's glory and to build Christ's church through this apostolic ministry. The apostolic age ended in the death of John. He was the last apostle. There are no more apostles today. Though you might hear that term used in church circles, the term itself in the New Testament sense has ended. Paul spoke on behalf of Jesus like an ambassador speaks on behalf of our country. Uh, So you think of someone who is an ambassador of the United States, goes to the U.N. and stands and says, on behalf of the United States, we believe this, or we want to do this, or we support this or that. Paul spoke on behalf of Jesus. You could say it this way. Whatever Paul said, Jesus said. What Paul wrote here was God's word. And that's the point that Paul is making. Paul is saying, I am coming to you with an authoritative message. This is bound upon your heart and upon your conscience. But I also want you to see that that Paul didn't sign up for this, as I said. Uh, Paul is an apostle by the will of God. Paul makes clear to his readers that he is a servant of Christ by God's will alone. Remember, Paul had other plans for his life. Uh, Paul didn't want to serve the church. He wanted to eradicate the church. He hated the church. He hated Jesus. And he hated everything that Jesus was about. He was militant in his early attacks of Christians, standing over the murder of Stephen, giving full and explicit. But what Paul was, was no more. Where he used to love to see Christians killed, Someone whom we might label as a terrorist today was one whom God radically transformed. On the road to Damascus, Paul had a radical conversion experience. Jesus revealed himself to Paul and commanded him. Didn't invite him. He said, you're going to follow me. He commanded him to follow him. And Jesus enlisted Paul into this new vocation where he would have new orders. Where he would take the gospel to the nations to the Gentiles like you and I, where Paul would write in this same letter in Ephesians chapter 3, this mystery of the Gentiles has been given to me, that I am a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. He worked for Christ by the will of God. What Paul teaches us here in this passage is that we also are servants of Christ. He's going to develop this theme throughout the letter of serving Christ and not ourselves. 
And Paul is an example for us to follow. While our life may not have been radically changed the way Paul's was, you know, we were, we were militant against the church and then radically God saved us. Nonetheless, we also are servants of Christ by the will of God. If you've repented of your sins and trusted in Christ, this new life now describes you, a servant. You might remember when you were a child, anytime you had to leave the house, I'm sure, you had to check out. You had to say, you know, I'm leaving the house. I'm going to go over to Johnny's house or to Susie's house. I'm going to leave. You had to, like, tell somebody. Why? Because if you didn't, mom was going to come after you. Uh, you had to check out before, you know, and then you had to check in when you got back. I'm back. I'm here. I'm present again. I'm not out doing bad things anymore. Uh, anymore. The, the picture that I hope to illustrate for you is you didn't get to choose when you checked out and when you check in. You had to ask for permission. And, and this illustrates well Paul's life and our life as servants of Christ. We don't get to choose how we live our lives. We, we don't get to live freely. We have to check out by checking in with Jesus. We have new master and his name is Jesus and it is good and glorious. And as a congregation, we want to be reminded that we are servants. We are servants. You know, we often get confused and think, you know, deacon ministry is only for the deacons, right? Service ministry is only for the servants. Well, brothers and sisters, that is not true. All of us are servants. We, we come not to be served, but to serve others. We are merely table waiters going around seeking how to serve others. This is, must be the heart of our time together. A time of service. So, brother and sister, I wonder, when you come to church on Sunday, when, when you gather with us, is it is about you being served or about you serving others? Do you come with an, intentional, uh, an intentionality of saying, you know, I want to find someone this morning that I can serve? Don't leave today without identifying a fellow brother or sister in Christ and say, I'm going to serve them this week. That might, that might mean taking them to the doctor. That might mean buying groceries for them. That might be just helping them out, praying with them, encouraging them, reading scripture with them. You know what kind of life our congregation would be if we, we weren't so self-centered and we were other-centered? If we gathered every Lord's Day saying, how can I be the best table servant in this congregation? Without title, Without recognition, how can I serve others? As Christians, we've been called to serve King Jesus. And this is a title of honor. Servant of Christ. Messenger of Christ. Well, I want you to see also, and this leads us to verse 1, the second half of verse 1. Paul says that he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And now he turns and addresses his recipients. And he says to them, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Paul identifies those he is writing to in two ways. You see them very clearly. He calls them saints in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Paul's writing to a congregation that have gathered in and around Ephesus. 
we were to study this ancient city of Ephesus, we would learn that this city was plagued by immorality and sin. This was a large trading city that had many people coming and going. It was a city unlike any in the ancient world. This also is where one of the seven wonders of the ancient world is still today. The column, a, a pillar to the temple to Artemis. The Roman emperor worship was at the central of life in Ephesus. This is where Paul almost loses his life because of emperor worship. The city was a cultural melting pot. A pagan city filled with typical licentiousness and sexual perversion. But God was at work among them. The city was not too dark. The city was not too far gone. Lives were being shaped and transformed by the gospel. And with this cultural climate brewing in the background, Paul writes to them and says to them, you are saints in Ephesus. Think about that for a moment. He reminds them of who they are. He doesn't say, church, you're becoming saints. You're becoming faithful. One day you might be there. One day if you work really hard at it, you'll be a saint. No, he says, to the saints in Ephesus. Paul here parallels these two identifiers in order to intensify what he is trying to say. Look at it this way, to the saints in Ephesus, to the faithful in Christ. Notice the parallelism there. He's doing it to emphasize the point which is in the midst of a pluralistic In the midst of a sinful culture, they stood out. They rose above the rest as saints. The word itself means holy ones. We know what the word means, right? Oh, she's acting like a saint now. But let me tell you how she was a minute ago. A saint was one who was set apart to be holy by God. Set apart. Holy unto God, saint. This is not something that the church confers upon someone, but it's something that God confers upon you. The importance of this idea will be developed in chapter 4 when Paul will write, Therefore, as a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. In other words, Paul summarizes his ethical exhortation this way. Act like what you are. Act like what you... You are a saint. Act like it. You are faithful in Christ. Act like it. Act like what you already are. You see, the gospel is not some self-improvement message. Be a better you. Work really hard. It's a declaration of who you are through faith in Christ. It's declared. It's conferred upon you. This is what makes Christianity so distinct and different than any world religion. Every world religion and system of improvement is about self-improvement by work. The gospel of Jesus Christ is about declaring holiness to unholy people through the holiness of another. Through the holiness of Christ Jesus Paul goes on to say that they are not only saints in in Ephesus, but they are faithful in Christ. Positions are all 
that important to Paul. Excuse me, prepositions. He uses the in preposition or the with preposition throughout this letter to teach the congregation that they are in Christ. They are in union with Christ. He has enveloped them. He has surrounded them. And he means here, what he means here is that they are in the realm and reign of Christ. They are united to him. They're not faithful because they're faithful. They're not saints because they're saintly, but because they're in Christ. Through their union with Christ, they are made holy. Through their union in Christ, they are made faithful. The word itself could be translated believers. They are believers through Christ. If it were possible for them to be disunited with Christ, from Christ, which they can't be, but if they could be, they would no longer be faithful. They are faithful because they are united to Christ. That's very important, brothers and sisters. Because if your faithfulness is dependent upon Christ and not you, that means the promise of uh, Romans 8, for example, that Nothing will be able to snatch you or nothing will be able to come against you. Paul argues similarly in Colossians chapter 2 when he writes, In him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. In other words, once circumcision's done, it can't be undone. Once the, the knife has come, it can't uncut what it's already cut. Once you've been circumcised in Christ, it's a done deal. It is finished for all of eternity. Once you've been in union with Christ, you cannot be disunified. In this second line of the parallelism, of the parallelism that Paul presents to us, he helps fill in the gaps. How were they holy? Because they were in union with Christ. How is it that he could declare them? Yes, they were sinners. Yes, they, I mean, they were sinners. Look at the moral exhortations he gives to them. He tells them to put away all falsehood, to stop being angry, to let no corrupt talk, they had dirty mouths. See, we are accustomed to calling people based on their personal performance rather than who they really are in Christ. Identity is all the important when it comes to the gospel. And brothers and sisters, this is not only true for them, but for us as well. As Christians, this grand and glorious description is applied to you. Through faith in Christ, you are a saint. Not because you're saintly, but because God has declared you holy. He has marked you and said, you're mine. We think, you know, we always give Satan all the credit. He's got a mark of the beast. Well, if you read Revelation, God's got a mark too for his. He says, those are mine. I mark them. They are holy. They are set apart for me and me alone. Friend, if you're not a Christian this morning, you cannot become a saint any other way. You can work real hard. You're just wearing yourself out. Wearing yourself thin. There are no amount of New Year's resolutions. I probably, I'm sure of it because I've done it myself. You've, I mean, we're six days in and we've already broken all of them, right? 
We just made it six days. You won't ever be able to make it. You won't ever be able to be holy. You won't ever be able to get your life cleaned up. won't ever be able to. So just stop and trust in Christ. Believe upon him. Believe upon his righteousness. And you, through faith in him, will be holy. And he promises you something here in this In this letter, he says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, God's at work. It's okay. He, He can do it. And he's promising holiness will result in your life. Brothers and sisters, it is a reminder here that they are saints in Ephesus, isn't it? In the midst of a sin ridden culture in the midst of a fallen and broken world we are a city set on a hill we are a light we are saints we are set apart it's encouraging to know that in the midst of sin and in the midst of our own sin god still sees us as saints and brothers and sisters this should identify us as a congregation This means that we believe the Bible teaches in regenerate church membership. In other words, only saints are members. Only those who have repented of their sins and trusted in Christ are members of the church. And we put out those who do not evidence repentance and faith. In other words, the church isn't for perfect people, but for saved people. This is the mark of a true Christian and must be the standard of our own congregation. A church is a gathering of saints. Through God's gracious call, we've received a new identity. Not one that we've earned by our moral living, but one that has been given to us. Like at birth, when your parents named you, you can do all that you want to try to change your name. You may not even like your name, but here's the deal. That's your name. You either got to live with it or do something about it. But we've been named by God. As Christians, we've received the, the family seal, the family crest, and it is holy. 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 This leads us then to our final point, final description of the Christian. You are receivers of grace and peace through Christ. This is not mere formalism. Paul doesn't just tack this little phrase on. It may be familiar to you. Verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This isn't some, you know, quaint, hello, grace and peace. Kind of like how we tag all of our prayers within Christ. We don't know why we do it. We just do it in Christ. Amen, right? I mean, the, the newest Christian always does that. Why? Because they hear it done. And so they do it. This is not what Paul is doing. Paul's not like, hey, you know, I know that popular phrase that we like to use in Christ. I don't know. Paul has meaning here. Paul means to communicate, to confer on them that they are recipients of grace and peace. Grace and peace is theirs through Christ. Paul bestows a word of blessing upon them before he burst out into, into his song of praise, which will follow in, in, chat, in verses 3 through 14. 
Paul bestows this blessing. He prays that God would give them grace and peace. He combines these ideas of grace, which is very Christian, and shalom, central to Jewish theology. He gives us a glimpse, I think, of what he's going to bring up in chapter 2 about how Jew and Gentile have been united through Christ. That grace and peace come only through Jesus. That the source of grace and peace that all of us need comes by the Father through the Son. Grace, God's unmerited favor, unearned, undeserved grace. And it comes only through Him. God is the everlasting, eternal source of grace. This is what John tells us in his gospel, right? Grace upon grace comes through Jesus Christ. Salvation is by grace alone. We could summarize this book as grace. It's all about grace, right? We all know chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved. Grace. We're saved from God's just wrath by no other means than His grace. God saves saves us from Himself. Friends, we're reminded we need grace. We cannot live with God without grace. Grace is the breath that gives us spiritual life. And this grace is free and unearned and unmerited. It's the most treasured possession you will ever have in your life. Grace. As Christians, we are in a unique and sacred position because we are recipients of grace. God's elect are unlike others, for they have received grace. They have not earned it, nor have they deserved it. We have not somehow impressed God so that we could have a measure of his grace. We have not wept tears and prayed prayers and received grace. No grace was bestowed upon us, Paul says, before the foundation of the world. When he called us in Christ. Our position is one of of humility. For we know we cannot achieve God's grace. It has been given to us by God's electing purposes alone. Not only are we receivers of grace, but we're also givers of grace. This is what defines us as Christians, what people know us by, our our giving of grace. I don't mean saying grace at dinner time. I mean givers of real grace. How sad it is. That we as Christians are so unforgiving, yet demand God's forgiveness. We're so hard on others, and we have these high expectations of others. And think, man, they should be getting on a little bit better in their spiritual life. They should be growing better by now. Yet demand God to forgive us when we are lousy in our own sanctification. We are givers of grace because we are receivers of grace. We share it because we know we don't deserve it. But Paul also says that grace and peace, we don't want to forget about peace, right? 
Paul says that peace comes only from the Father through the Son. Peace with God and peace with one another. Peace, a state of well-being, a lack of hostility. The Bible tells us that in our sin, we are at enmity with God. We are at war with God. We are not children of God. We are not friends of God. We ain't singing what a friend we have in Jesus without Jesus. Okay, God is not your friend. Your sin has done something terrible. It has separated you and put you at war with God. But through Christ, the weapons are laid down. The warfare is over. And we are at peace with God. And more than that, peace with one another. Paul will go on in chapter 2 to talk about, one, how we're at peace with God. And then secondly, how we're at peace with one another. That through the death of Christ, this wall has been broken down. A wall that, of division, of hostility among Jews and Gentiles. And how through the gospel he's made one, one new people through Christ. He's united all of humanity as God saves from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Peace with God and peace with one another comes only through Jesus Christ. Friend, if you're not a Christian, in our world we often give ourselves to many means to peace. In our relationships, we often seek peace by ignoring others, by just ignoring the problem. Countries try to have peace with one another. And people groups try to be at peace. But friend, this world will never, ever be at peace. It will continue in war until the great war. But Paul tells us in chapter 2, the war to end all wars came on the cross of Calvary. When Jesus died. Three times in these two verses. Paul has mentioned one name. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus. To the saints who are faithful. Saints who are in Ephesus. And are faithful in Christ Jesus. And finally grace to you and peace from God our Father. And the Lord Jesus Christ. I think Paul has something to say about Jesus in this book. You can't miss the fact that he combines God our Father and Jesus Christ together. Puts them on the same playing field. He elevates this human being to the equal standing with God. Why? Because he was equal with God. For he was God. He says that the source of grace and peace is God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, grace and peace comes from both the Father and the Son and distributed by the Spirit. Paul worked by God's will. They were faithful in Christ. And finally, Paul makes a concerted effort, I think, to, to make sure you know where your grace and peace comes from. This is not the main point, but it is a central point of the letter. That Jesus is the eternal Son of God from whom life is given. 
our God is none other than Jesus Christ. And Christ, the Messiah, will be the central figure in this, in this book, in this letter. It will be the central person in the praise hymn that Paul will begin with in chapter 1 and verse 3. God is glorified most through Jesus Christ, his son. Brothers and sisters, I pray that we are humbled as we receive God's grace that comes through Jesus Christ. I pray as we think about these great themes, about God's grace and mercy and peace, about what it means to be a saint now and for all of eternity. For a better part of two decades, people, particularly younger people, although I find it fascinating that older are fascinated by this. For a better part of two decades now, people have anticipated every year with great expectation seeing new cell phones produced. It's quite fascinating to see how everyone must have the latest and the greatest. Some are fine with their old ones. But every year, manufacturers from Apple to Samsung churn out these new and innovative, glittering and shining bright screens, growing bigger and bigger by the year, it seems. Or longer, we'll be carrying around laptops and cell phones. Each one more innovative, faster. Got to have more storage, got to put all my pictures on there, all my movies. People even wait in line so that they can get them and spend enormous amount of money to buy them. But as the years go on and these new phones are created, one thing remains the same. They're phones. They make phone calls. If you ever think about it, they don't change that. Still nine little digits on there and, and a... And a send button and a call button. They really aren't new after all. They're the same old thing, just repackaged. And yeah, they're really fast, but they make a phone call the same way. Really not that innovative after all. When you dial a number, someone picks up. It's really not too much different than those old rotary phones. You know, you dial a number and someone picks up on the other end. And friend, we often think of the gospel the same way. Each year, we're a little better than the year before. We're a little faster in our Bible reading. We're a little slicker in our prayer time. We're better each year. Each year, we've improved. The model has gotten better, more glamorous. And each year, we get upgrades. New technology, but in the end, we're the same old thing. Friends, that's not Christianity, and that's not the gospel. You see, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're not a better version of what you were last year. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're a new version. You don't even make phone calls anymore. You do something completely different. You have a new love. You have a new function. You're not the same. You've been transformed. God has made you a new creation in Christ Jesus. We are servants of Christ now. We are saints of Christ now. We are recipients of grace and peace now. 
all of this to God's glorious praise and worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that your word would transform our lives. We are at the end of ourselves today. We cannot change, but you can change us. And by faith, we trust this morning in Jesus Christ who lived a perfect life and died a perfect sacrifice for our sins. And we trust in him that his perfect life has been accredited to us and his death has satisfied your righteous anger against us. And that by faith, we receive your grace and peace. Father, may this be our theme this year. Build your church for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.